Beloved congregation of the Lord, as we begin our afternoon message, I would ask you to turn in the back of your Psalters to page 62. Page 62, as we consider again the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, as summarized in this portion of our Catechism in Lord's Day 30, on page 62. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted. For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession in life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. As I've been reflecting upon this portion of our catechism, it has struck me how different the threats to the truth are and yet how unchanging the truth of the scriptures is. In the days in which Ursinus, our um, reformer who composed this catechism, wrote these Lord's Days, the major threat to the purity of the sacrament consisted in errors from the Roman Catholic and Lutheran traditions. And as he explains the truth both negatively and positively, You come to see some of the threats that he was contending with. Don't imagine that he would have expected the kind of threats that we experience today in the Reformed churches. One among them is the doctrine of paedo-communion. Paedo-communion, what is this doctrine? Well, there are those who would contend that the children of Christians should likewise partake with confessing believers of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is what even some uh, denominations are 
adopting. And from time to time, I will encounter someone who is taken with this particular point of view. Now, I'm sensitive to the reality that in addressing it here, I do not want to introduce arguments that perhaps you've not even considered for a serious error, but I challenge you to consider that it is likely to come across your path at one point or another, even if it has not already. And in the last sermon on this uh, subject, where we considered the Passover meal, there is a matter which we will briefly consider by way of introduction. Is it the case that the Passover meal was used by infants, small children in the households of Israel? That is the question. You may ask, well, what is the relevant there? Well, we saw last week, I trust, that the Passover functioned as a sacrament of the Lord Jesus Christ. It served to signify and seal the grace of Jesus Christ unto believers. And so, some would argue that there is a connection for that reason. Both Passover and the Lord's Supper are both sacraments. There's this further reason. There's certainly a connection historically when the Lord's Supper was instituted by our Savior Jesus Christ. Where we consider the context of Luke 22, for example, verse 7, we read, when, they, when came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, that is, the Passover lamb must be killed, and he, that is Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, go prepare us the Passover that we may eat. The first Lord's Supper, you see, was in the context of celebrating the Passover meal. Moreover, there in the same chapter, verse 15, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so since even Christ refers, at least in one place, to the Lord's Supper, at least the initial Lord's Supper as a Passover meal, it perhaps behooves us to ask this question, did did children partake of the Passover meal? Well, you remember we read last week in Exodus 12 and verse 4, where that first Passover was inaugurated. There we read, And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house or household take it according to the number of the souls or the number of the people, we could say. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So it's in the context of families gathering together for a meal. And so the question may become, isn't it really common sense that children would have partaken at a family meal? Well, there's at least one complexity that we must introduce. There is a distinction, you see, between the initial Passover event and the ongoing celebration of the ordinance of the Passover meal. What I mean is there was one night in which the angel of the Lord literally passed through all the households, sparing those that were covered in their doorposts with the blood of the Passover lamb. And that event was then celebrated subsequently in later celebrations of the Lord's Supper. And eventually this was centralized in the worship of Jerusalem, so all the families would make their way up to Jerusalem. 
And so even if it would be uh, evident that children would celebrate in the Passover event, which I would agree is likely, then becomes the question, would they have celebrated in the regular Passover meal, which is now um, set apart as a regular traditional worship event? I want to read just a, a brief a quotation from a very helpful article, Why Not Pado Communion, by a man named Wes White, who is an elder in the Presbyterian Church of America. And you can find this um, if, you, if you search for his name in that title. This is some of the reasons why he says that there is evidence that children did not partake in the regular uh, Passover um, celebration. He says, first, there's no clear evidence that young children were to participate in the institutional Passover, at least in all its rites. Indeed, there is evidence to the contrary. Second, all the males were to go up three times a year to the feasts of the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This seems to refer to adult males because each male is to bring an adult to present to God from the fruit of their labor. Third, the children are specifically mentioned as participating in the Feasts of Weeks and the Feast of Booze, but they are not mentioned in relation to the Passover. And fourth, extensive preparation was required for the Passover, which you can read about in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 18 and Ezra chapter 6. To this we may also mention that in the Lord Jesus' case himself, his first uh, Passover that is recorded is not when he is an infant, as he, indeed he was circumcised as an infant, but in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41, we read this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. What we may conclude from, as others have, is that this is perhaps evidence that it was upon an older age when there was the possibility of instruction in doctrine and in the history and the law that children would partake of the Passover meal in Jerusalem. However, I think we must recognize that even with that evidence, it's not utterly conclusive. We can state some probabilities from the textual data, but I'm, I'm not utterly persuaded in either case. Well, therefore, may we ask the question, is there anything else to consider upon this? Well, the most clear question is what the Bible itself says about the participation of the Lord's Supper. And we will have a whole sermon on 1 Corinthians 11 and how it definitively disproves Pado communion. But before we get to that, I also want to give you some more Old Testament backdrop to the Lord's Supper, which will be helpful because in that same chapter we read in Luke 22, there's some words that are familiar, but maybe you need to be reminded of. Luke 22 and verse 15, And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, a couple things. One, there is no uh, cup of significance in the either Passover event or the Passover, um, Passover institution. And so we may say that there's already a difference here just on the surface. But also, 
Jesus here is pointing back to a very important event. He is referencing the words which Moses himself spoke at a very different sort of meal, a meal on the, on the side of Mount Sinai. We read in verse 8 of Exodus 24, which we read, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So the blood of the testament, of the testament or, the, or the blood of the covenant. In both cases, it's the same Greek word that is translated in one place, covenant or testament. And so there's a clear reference here. And I want to, for that reason, give you what I would put uh, from this passage as some strong evidence that the Lord's Supper is not merely a recapitulation or a continuation of the Passover meal. It is combining the significance and the meaning of both the Passover meal and this meal, which we observe on, the, on Mount Sinai. And so in order to uh, seek to prove this from the scriptures and hopefully instruct and edify us as we consider this portion of God's word, we will consider the theme a covenant meal, a covenant meal. And we will see first a holy people, second, a gracious covenant, and third, a special communion. A covenant meal, first, a holy people, second, a gracious covenant, and third, a special communion. Well, really, if you were to study the book of Exodus, every portion of it is profitable, but I think we understand that this part of Exodus is uniquely significant. That's why in this section where there is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, we read from that every morning service, every Lord's Day. So important is it to understand what the law of God teaches there. But maybe we forget that the law of God is given in a, in a context where that is spoken to the people of God having been redeemed from Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, brought through some of their wilderness wanderings there to Mount Sinai. Then you have the events from ninth, chapter 19 to um, our present text, chapter 24, where there is a special declaration of God's covenant with that people Israel that prepares them for, get, for receiving the law in chapter 19. And then you have not only the Ten Commandments themselves in chapter 20, but then in 21, 22, 23, you have the expansion of more precepts, more commandments, in addition to the Ten Commandments, for various moral matters. And here in 24, we have a continuation of the narrative as a group makes their way up onto Mount Sinai under the Lord's command. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words 
which the Lord hath said we will do. Now, they say that repeatedly in this chapter, and they also say that in response to the Lord's um, message in chapter 19, all that the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And indeed, you have a very special moment in the whole history of the people of Israel at that point. They have heard the revelation of God. They have seen the glorious acts of redemption. And now they pledge themselves to be the people of God, to be set apart as a congregation or a church of the Jews, ordained for worship, ordained for service, and bound, of course, not only to trust in the gracious promises of salvation through the mediator to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to obey the commandments of God. In true gratitude for his redemption, these are the things that are held forth here. They are to be a holy people. That was also how it was described there in chapter 19 and verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say unto the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people, for, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So in this place where the people of Israel are made, as it were, a kingdom of priests, it's striking that the mountain seems to function as a kind of temple. It's a very holy place, this temple. It's referred to as such in Psalm 68, verse 17. Mount Sinai is a holy place. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. At this point, in redemptive history, the uh, glory cloud of God and the, the magnificent um, revelation of his presence resided there on Mount Sinai. And now God has led his people there. And... There's a particular guarding of this holy presence of God. Children, if you had been there on the mountain, maybe you would have said, wow, it's such an incredible thing. There is the presence of God. And Moses records here in Exodus that it looked like a consuming fire upon the mountain. Maybe you would have said, well, that's interesting. Maybe I want to get close. But, but God actually says you can't just approach his holy presence on this mountain. No, what does he say in chapter 19 and verse 19? And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned 
or shot through, whether it be beast or man. It shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wife. And so there's a number of things going on here. Yes, the people at large, they are to be set apart as a holy people just by approaching the mountain. But they're, they're not to touch it. They can't touch it. And even coming close to the mountain, they have to wash their clothes. And they, they even need to set a time where instead of focusing on marital relations within the marriage covenant, instead they are to be preparing their souls in order to approach into the presence of God. Is there not a teaching lesson here? God is so magnificent, so holy, so righteous. And we do well to remember that where we come into the presence of God and have to do with his worship, then the most great care needs to be taking place. Everything matters where we approach unto God. Every uh, time of preparation for worship, the frame of mind as we enter into worship, our activity of our hearts during worship, it all is important to God. And all this is being taught unto the people you see. Exodus 19 and verse 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain, sanctify him. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, but he break forth upon them. Now I've said that this Mount Sinai is kind of like a temple. And we could say just like the temple, the very holy of holies is the very top of Mount Sinai, which it appears that only Moses himself can approach unto. And yet this selection of priests and elders, as we read, they are allowed to come up onto the side of the mountain. They don't go up all the way. So as it were, they are in a holy place. The presence of God is here. And not as anyone can even get that close. But, he, but they are allowed to get closer still to this presence of God. What a great honor. But surely it would have filled them with trembling and fear to know that they are in the presence of this great God. Surely in this day in which there is such a casual, carefree attitude towards God, people even making jokes about the things of God and the scriptures, taking his name in vain in so many ways. I think that we do well to take many trips to Mount Sinai in our scripture reading, reflecting upon his magnificence and his greatness and what that means to truly be his people. God would have his people to be a holy nation, a peculiar people set apart unto his glory. And in this case, that was reflected, you see, reflected in a representative sample. Not all of the people 
of that covenant church, but a representative sample, the elders and the priests, going up with Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, and Moses himself there for this most special covenant meal. And so to draw some of the things I mentioned in my introduction, if we would say that de facto, by default, children must be at the Lord's Supper because in the Passover meal there was no explicit command to exclude them, we ought to at least bear in mind that if this event is also an anticipation of the Lord's Supper, the surrounding context is one of uh, exclusion, just if we were to regard this event in itself. And if it bears upon the Lord's Supper, well, then that just needs to go into an informed understanding of what the Lord's Supper involves. We cannot assume that anyone, even if they are a, a child who's part of the church, may come to uh, a sacrament. Therefore, we continue on to the second matter, and that is a gracious covenant, a gracious covenant. Can you imagine what it would have been to utter those words? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a sobering thing. Think of all the dimensions of the law. Jesus summarized it, didn't he, with those words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, it is a spiritual thing. The law of God always has been concerning not only your outward conduct, but also the inner recesses of your heart. If you know yourself at all, to pledge yourself in this way, as to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called upon to do, to express your gratitude unto him by pledging yourself unto him to be his disciple. And you can very easily become distraught and, and concerned. How is it that I could truly be a Christian, to be one who would follow the Lord, to be part of his church and people? And more than that, you see, uh, these particular ones were representing the whole priestly people in a special way. And there they are in this special context on the back of Mount Sinai. And here... We see how it is that the Lord appoints a means of assuring the conscience and giving a revelation of his grace unto this people. We read in verse 5, And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Actually, I'd also read verse 4 as well. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and wrote, woke up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the goal here is to have a series of sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings. And before the animals are killed, you see there's the one altar, which... Commentators seem to say is representing God and these 12 pillars, which are representing the 12 tribes of Israel, sort of the two parties of this covenant between God and man, the gracious covenant revealed on Mount Sinai. 
And right at the center of this event is the shedding of blood. Setting forth that great reality that without the shedding of blood is no forgiveness for sins. There must be substitution. There must be atonement. Where the soul that sins, that same soul shall die. Except the Lord provide a substitute, not ultimately these animals, but that which they are pointing ahead to, the once-for-all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, the elect of God among these Jews, receiving that promise in faith, though pictured through these ceremonies. We read here in verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins or jars, and, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So he, as it was the custom of the priest, dipped some wool and hyssop into the blood, and he sprinkled some upon the altar. And in verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. They say it again. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. I take that to be the, the 12 pillars representing the people. But he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. It's in the context of this gracious covenant that God has made. Not that they are acceptable in themselves, but they are acceptable by means of a covenant that God has made with sinners. Let me read from you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I think has a really good statement of what the covenant of grace is. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that is the covenant of works with Adam, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life by his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This is the covenant of grace. Indeed, differently administered in the days of Moses. It was pictured through these types and shadows, these ceremonies. But now the one and the same covenant is revealed in the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same salvation wherein God covenants with sinners in Jesus Christ is offered and presented unto us in the preaching of the word. And revealed also in the holy sacraments that we possess. And so this event is recorded as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews. And deserves some notice what we read there in Hebrews chapter 9. And we read in verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people According to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. 
So perhaps a word needs to be spoken about what I alluded to. Why is it that the King James Bible translates both Luke 22, where Jesus says, this blood is the new testament in my blood, and also in this place, the Greek word diatheke as testament, where obviously it's quoting from the Hebrew where the King James renders that um, covenant. Well, what this is expressing is the reality that this covenant of grace which God has made with sinners is not like an ordinary business agreement. Perhaps you and I enter into an agreement to start a business together. And we say, well, this is the uh, amount of money we'll provide to this venture. And we're going to shake hands on it or sign a contract. And these are the, the kind of ways in which we'll conduct our business and so forth. Those are covenants between equal parties where they each have to contribute and, and work towards something that they will accomplish together. But where God covenants, he does not covenant with an equal party. Think of the poor soul who is lying in his sins, spiritually dead, enslaved to his lusts and sins, without faith, without hope or God in the world. What does this sinner need? Does he need a business agreement where God says, well, you do your bit and I do my bit? No. He needs God to do a radical work where he performs, even in this sinner, that which he cannot perform for himself, and that through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. That same chapter, Hebrews 9, that refers to Moses' words. We read in verse 16, For when a, where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Wherefore, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. What is the argument here? Well, as it happens in the Greek language, this word diatheke can refer, as it often does, to a, a will, to a testament. Maybe you've had your wills already written up. If I die, my, uh, my possessions go to my family and so forth. It's not an agreement between two people engaging in a contract, but it's one person drawing up the terms of the arrangement. And this is a force, or it's an effect, upon a death. So it is that when a person dies, their will bequeaths an inheritance unto the one whose name is recorded there. And since the range of meaning of this Greek word diatheke, it encompasses both an agreement between two parties and a, a unilateral agreement in the, in the form of a will, it appears that this is what the apostle is arguing, that the covenant of grace has always had this sense to it, that it's God alone who brings salvation to pass in Jesus Christ, not us cooperating with him and therefore earning anything. Listen to the Westminster Confession again. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance 
with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. This is one area, I believe, where the King James Bible is superior to modern translations, even otherwise good translations like the New King James, they would translate the words of the Lord Jesus, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is not strictly wrong. However, given the force of the whole sense of what Jesus is saying there, that his death is about to be at hand, that an inheritance is about to be made, that really that is, I think, the, the right translation. This is the New Testament in my blood. At the same time, of course, carrying with it, carrying with it the sense of Moses' words, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the testament. There's a unity of both old and New Testaments in the person of Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is the only way you can do any service unto God. Would you say to God today, all that the Lord has spoken, I will do. Well, your conscience must be cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. You must apply unto him. Otherwise, what happens? Hypocrisy sets in as you imagine that you are already good enough to serve the Lord. And where your conscience agitates you, you suppress it and you you live in hypocrisy. So it is that so many dabble in religion. But the way to be truly a man or a woman of God, a boy or a girl of God, is to say, yes, all the Lord has spoken, I will do by the grace of Jesus Christ at work in my life. As I receive his free forgiveness, As the Holy Spirit of his love works in my soul, I shall pledge and bind myself unto him. And as the Lord Jesus himself has said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we see not only a holy people, but also a gracious covenant. And now a special communion, a special communion, the meal that we've all been referring to here. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. What a remarkable meal that was. There on the side of Mount Sinai, they ate and drank with God. You see, God in a very special way revealed himself through a person who is sometimes called the angel of the Lord. Not because he is a created angel but because he is a messenger, which is all the word angel means. He's a messenger of God, the person of the Son of God, eternal, unchangeable, equal to the Father in all things, God of God, light of light. He appeared there on Mount Sinai in his pre-incarnate state. It's the same uh, One referred to in verse 20 of chapter 23. Behold, I send an angel before 
thee to keep thee in the way, to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. The name of the Father is in the Son, the person of the Son, and he is the one who reveals the Father. He reveals him there on the side of Mount Sinai. This is also referred to in Acts chapter 7, the speech of the martyr Stephen, where we read in Acts 7 verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. This is the angel of the Lord. And, and you notice how it's almost completely devoid of explanation. They don't describe the figure that they see. It passes over in silence. Because it is a holy thing that they saw. And you notice that one thing is mentioned here about this appearance of the angel of the Lord, or the Son of God. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. So literally bricks of sapphire were under him and uh, some of the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew commentators in the Targum of Jonathan, they seem to indicate that maybe this is a reference to the bricks that the people of Israel made in uh, Egypt. They had to make bricks without straw because Pharaoh was so wicked as a taskmaster. But here we have a reference to that perhaps, not with bricks of clay or stone, but here with bricks of sapphire, radiant, bright stones are under his feet. And you notice uh, as well uh, that it mentions, um, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So something about these, these stones that were under his feet that made it look like a clear sky. Have you ever seen a clear sky, not a cloud there? And you see the brightness of the sun. Whereas a cloudy sky might remind you of God's anger and wrath. A clear sky reminds you of his, of his love, his grace and favor. So it was. Something of, of this representation here reflects the free love of God for his people, his goodwill towards them. That's what seems to be conveyed with this description. But more than that, he eats with them. There's this meal and, and there's fellowship and there's sharing. This is not a God who is far off, who is distant, but one who desires to draw close unto sinners. Indeed, it, it's a holy meal. It's one that you must not just lunge into and plunge into without preparation or without appropriate qualifications as one who is a believer. And yet, at the same time, the Lord's Supper is also such a holy meal and one that we may partake with in trembling. We should also draw to your attention, and this will be the last main, main thought, 
that this is recapitulated and represented this meal in the chapter right afterward where the, the schematics of the tabernacle are laid out, which will later be transitioned into a temple. But we know that in that tabernacle, where like the mountain, there is a holy of holies that the high priest can go to, and, and, beyond, and before that is a holy place. We read in Exodus 25 and verse 23, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two ta- cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit the half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make un- thereto a crown of gold round about. This is the table of the showbread. Isn't that interesting? That right before the, the Holy of Holies, there's this, this table with bread upon it. Read about it in Exodus 37, verse 16. And he made the vessels which were upon the table, his dishes and his spoons and his bowls and his covers to cover with all of pure gold. And he made the candlestick of pure gold of beaten work. Made he the candlestick, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knobs, his flowers were of the same. Let me read to you what Michael McKelvey uh, writes here. The primary purpose of the table, the table of the showbread, was to hold the bread of the presence, literally the bread of the face, which was set before the presence-slash-face of Jehovah, Exodus 25, verse 30. Each Sabbath, the priest would replace the loaves from the previous week with a fresh batch of bread, Leviticus 24. Exactly 12 loaves were arranged into two rows of six, and these loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. These loaves were a food offering to God that was to be perpetually carried out as a covenant forever. Leviticus 24, verse 8. Now, he especially recognizes in his article on this subject that there is a connection to the the Supper on Mount Sinai, that this is represented and continued with this meal that's to take place regularly in the tabernacle on the the table of showbread. This is what he writes. This was the covenant meal that commemorated the relationship between Jehovah and Israel. Eating in the presence of God revealed that Israel was intimately known and loved by him. So as the 12 loaves were a food offering to Jehovah and were later eaten by the priestly representatives of the people, the table became a perpetual reminder of the intimate fellowship that God shared with his people. Well, this is relevant not only to understanding that this is also bound up with the Lord's Supper, as the Lord Jesus explicitly refers to this event and carries it forward with our own sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It also reminds us of the gracious character of our God and all of his worship. Oh, is it not a glorious thing, Christian, that you can call upon God in a personal way as your Father in Jesus Christ, not only as your Lord and Sovereign, but as a dear friend? Yes, he never ceases to be holy, never ceases to be a consuming fire. And yet at the same time, he in his condescending love would enter into covenant with the likes of you and I. Let us stir us up to not only worship him in fear, but in deep, reverent love. Amen.